This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with the host of the Sports Coaching podcast, Sam Holmshaw. He discusses the value of game models and how he implements them in a practical setting. He discusses his experiences moving from an individual sport of swimming into a team sport of football and the importance of practice design when trying to replicate in-game scenarios. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please make sure you subscribe and share it with a friend. I hope you enjoy. Okay, welcome back to the latest episode of the Sports Coaching Podcast with me, Sam Elmshaw. And we've got a very, very, very special episode collaboration uh, today, which we're going to talk about just in a second. But first, let me introduce my special guest for this episode, Mr. Michael Wright. Michael, how are you doing? Yeah, all good. Thank you, Sam. And nice for us to be able to eventually get this in the diary. I know, obviously, we've been talking back and forth for the last year or so just giving each other's tips and advice and stuff. So it's nice to be able to get this one actually in the diary to uh, record. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Like you say, it has been, has been a, a long time, hasn't it, since we had that initial phone call giving tips and advice and everything. Uh, quite quite surreal, really, where we think we're, we're both we are uh, at the minute. But anyway, I mean, Michael, how's, how's everything been in COVID for you? Managed to, to get through it, keep busy, keep occupied? Yeah, I've been pretty lucky, if I'm honest. In in the house, it's just kind of me, the wife and the dog for the most part, which makes life a little bit easier, um, apart from when I'm trying to record my podcast with the dog barking occasionally, um, which you might be able to hear. But no, we've been quite fortunate, as I said. The podcast I've done over the last year and kind of been a long-term project, so I've been able to do that. Um, and then work has kept me busy, um, which has been good, trying to engage the players online. Um, and setting up their practice at home, etc. So that's something I've been able to do kind of in and around all the craziness, which has kept me a little bit sane. Yeah, fantastic. Certainly, certainly relate to that, especially with the dog barking as well, a common common theme of my podcast. But uh, fantastic. Well, we, we know we've, we've done this little collaboration uh, and we've decided that we're going to uh, basically introduce ourselves and each other's platform. So, so you're going first, Michael. So I guess for all my listeners who uh, might have seen the, the podcast advertising a few of my uh, social media channels the, the last couple of weeks or so. Uh, it would be great if you could tell us all about your coaching background, I guess where the journey started and what's led you to where you are today. Yeah, so <clears throat> it probably started for me coaching whilst I was playing. Um, so I actually played for QPR for five years from 13s through to 18s. Um, got released, as a lot of people do, at that 18s band going for your pro contract. But within that, you had to complete your level two in coaching. So I did a kind of, um, for a family friend, went and did some coaching just for their local team, etc. and really enjoyed it. Um, kind of following in my dad's footsteps at the time, he was a bit of a coach and kind of jumped on that bandwagon. Uh, after getting released, I went down to Bath and played and got into community coaching, etc. And that's probably where I really found kind of my, my passion for it, if you like. So I ended up um, working for Team Bath, the University of Bath, the first team down there, which is quite a recognised university programme. Um, and it's quite a historical thing in terms of them, you know, getting into the FA Cup and progressing through the leads, uh, leagues, etc. Um, and based out of there, there's also a, a Southampton Academy, which I was fortunate enough to get involved with. And that's kind of where I've been for the last 10 years, or almost 10 years now, in terms of coaching 
um, within that Southampton setup, um, and obviously kind of one of the most well-renowned uh, academies in the country in terms of producing players and the thoughtfulness and care that goes into those players. So I've been really fortunate with my education in terms of um, falling into that and the CPD opportunities and the, the players we get to work with, facilities, etc. Um, I've done a couple of other roles in around that, but that's pretty much where I am today. And I actually started a new role two weeks ago within the recruitment department for Southampton. So a little bit of a change up for myself, which will be interesting. But yeah, in, in summary, that's kind of where I am. Started when I'm playing and then went through University at Bath or Team Bath and then just been really fortunate to um, work at the Southampton Academy and travel you know, internationally with our games programme, which has been brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. I mean... First question I've got to ask you, I mean, you know, tell us more about the Southampton Academy. It's something that's always piqued my interest, just the continuation of the players that seem to come through there. I mean, what is it about that academy that just makes it so much different or or maybe leads to more success with players coming through the age ranks there into the first team? So I'd love to be able to say I could give everyone a massive golden nugget. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. I think the, the honest answer is there's a pathway. There's a pathway that the players, you know, within the setup can see. Um, and I think that's one of the big things in terms of at our club, you know, that if you're progressing well and um, you're getting support from both coaches and, and family, etc., and you're working really hard, there is a pathway for you into that first team environment, whereas that can be challenging in, in different environments. If we look abroad, you look at your Juventus or your Inter Milan's, etc., the scope of players they're able to bring in, um, you know, the money they're able to spend, the, the players nationwide they're able to recruit makes it more challenging. Whereas at Southampton, the location probably helps in terms of clubs within the region isn't as dense as somewhere like London. Um, and just the historical thing of, of doing that. Um, and in and around that, listen, there's a lot of good people at Southampton um, who work incredibly hard to support these players. And we always say that it's, it's a, players journey and we're there to facilitate that so from our perspective we support the players and in their journey and look at it on a holistic level to support them in their mm -hmm. development so been really fortunate in that is this club that I've been in and um, yeah ever thankful that I, I found that and that was a way that I was brought up to coach yeah yeah I mean great insight really uh, re really fascinating actually that you know, really, it's just quite a simple answer, really, in, in terms of the values of the club and I guess what, you know, pulling the players there, which, which you know, I think is more around in academies now, maybe it wasn't 10, 20 years ago. So, so yeah, really interesting. And, and I mean, another question I've got, actually, obviously you mentioned that yeah, your dad were a coach. Same for me, that's actually how I got into coaching. So, you know, a family affair you know, was always something that had you interest, even when you were a player or just kind not, of... Be honest, not really. I just love playing. For me, I love playing. I played all sports, was massive on the multi-sports and stuff. Um, so I kind of, my dad fell into it because he had no other choice. There was no one else to take us. Um, so it was either take us or us not play, which obviously wasn't allowed us to do. So for me, it was just um, a case of I wanted to play. Obviously, I was fortunate enough to the standard that I got to. Um, and, and he was really supportive within that. And I think ultimately if you stop playing you probably want to do something that's as closely related to it as possible um and coaching is probably the easiest step that a lot of people take so 
I know the phrase, if you can't do, then teach. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that all the time. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But yeah, for me, it was more of a, um, I really enjoyed the game, really enjoyed sport. And that was a, a natural progression. I mean, obviously for yourself, you mentioned there in terms of dad, what's your background and what's your current um, projects, etc. For for my listeners that maybe haven't come across your podcast yet. Well, I mean, you, you, you could say similarly within the, the sort of coaching. Um, I actually came up through a, a talent pathway myself, but actually not in football, actually in swimming. So, and, and that always seems to shock quite a few people to see in the sort of position I am today within football. Uh, but, you know, very much one of those youngsters that was involved, you know, six, seven times a week training. Uh, I can remember on Sundays getting up at half five to train at half six and, you know, just sort of prolonged periods of travelling to the city of Sheffield and, and swimming for Sheffield. And, you know, you could look back and say great experience. Um, for me, I always kind of just didn't really enjoy that time. I always kind of look back and think a bit of a waste of time. I, I love swimming. Absolutely love the sport. Really enjoyed it. But uh, wasn't really interested in sort of going into that sort of, you know, elite Olympic Commonwealth sort of route that, you know, I suppose everyone else I was swimming with at the time was probably striving for even at that age. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of my background as an athlete. In terms of how I got into football, uh, my dad, coach, uh, basically, I've got three younger brothers. They were all football mad growing up. I mean, I, I liked football. Probably didn't watch it as much as them. Uh, didn't get into it into a, probably when I was about nine or ten, really. Uh, but, yeah, he, he set up a junior football team. Uh, so, for me, that was kind of like having our own club, going and, and watching. And I'd never really seen junior football or what, what it was about, really. So, you know, being 11, 12, going and watching, uh, you know, almost like having the best seat in the house, really. I can remember sometimes actually being on the touchline with my dad and, and watching the team. And it was absolutely brilliant. Um, so that, that's kind of how I got into football. So a very different route, uh, you know, never really, you know, wasn't a good player, obviously. You know, I, I was a decent player for the time I started. Uh, but, you know, of course, all sort of recreational playing after school, uh, all that sort of stuff. And then eventually joined a junior football team myself. Um, when I got to 16, I found it really difficult playing in a junior football team and it was probably because of my sort of mindset as a swimmer when I was a swimmer sort of coming up I guess the pressurized environment it was all about winning it's all about competing all about being the best then you're playing at 16 in a junior football team and these lads were you know more bothered about talking about girls at school or you know that sort of stuff and I'm just there like well, hang on a minute we've got to prepare properly we've got to get here on time we've got to train we've got to warm up you know, we've got to have good team talk be mentally ready to play and I can remember, like, we would lose games. And I'd go home and I'd, you know, be in my room and it'd, it'd really affect me. And all them other lads, they just kind of, you know, for, you know, didn't have that mindset, of course, sort of being in that context. So at 16, I just thought, well, this is a waste of time. This is a waste of time. I really, you know, I'm interested in coaching. I've seen my dad do it for, for years. So, you know, I quite fancy jumping into it. And that's kind of how it all started for me. Spent two or three years uh, coaching under my dad, which was a sort of really great introduction, really into the coaching world. I mean, quite uh, shocking, really, when you've sort of come from an individual sport and then suddenly you're thrown into this team sport and you're, you know, giving feedback to these youngsters and, you know, delivering sessions and all that sort of stuff. Uh, then got to 18, given the chance to manage my own team, which looking back probably came quite early, but, you know, absolutely fantastic experience and, and sort of the memories and, 
and the relationships we had with them youngsters under 11s at the time was was fantastic then decided to go to uni because I'd suddenly gone this is you know this is what I want to do I'm you know very passionate about football now very passionate about coaching and I'd had three fantastic years up there uh, with a sort of range of experience as well actually did some volleyball coaching uh, you know also did a bit of time as a surfer growing up so managed to join a surf team and do some bit of coaching within surfing which was uh, an, an interesting experience should we say uh, and then got to the sort of conclusion of that 2019 and thought well you know I actually really enjoy the the sort of uh, acadi- uh, academia side of, of sports coaching you know concepts about uh, how people learn the sort of psychology uh, you know types of practice and how that affects uh, how you know players learn develop you know and, and all that sort of stuff so decided to get into a master's degree which you know, approaching the the final few months of that and, and getting on well with the uh, the dissertation process, uh, and then you know earlier this year, got offered the chance to become the first team manager of an amateur football club up in Leeds. Uh, uh, sorry, the the women's first team manager uh, called Oakley Town, which is a very nice area up in Yorkshire. And yeah, managing the women's section, we've uh, we've we've really enjoyed that. Although that's been quite a challenging time, sort of you know three months in, and we've only had two sessions with with a lockdown and everything. But um, you know, absolutely loving that. So, I suppose in a nutshell, that's that's probably my journey from being a swimmer to to now being a football manager. I think one thing you've you've alluded to there is really interesting is the dynamic of going from an individual based sport into a team one. Um, is there any learnings you've taken from your swimming background or your swimming experiences or how you were dealt with um, into the group coaching, either in a positive or negative way? Yeah, massively. I think the biggest one was not having everything on your shoulders. You know, when, when it was a swimmer and you didn't perform well, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't race well, well, it's all down to you. So you feel that. So I think sort of going back to when I first started playing football in this sort of junior team that was more about having fun for them other lads. If we lost, I probably didn't feel the team lost. I probably felt I'd lost. Or it was my down to my individual performance or, you know, sort of taking sort of everyone else's feeling of losing and sort of bringing it up on myself. And and that was a, a big thing I actually took into uh, football coaching, that, you know, sort of idea of, you know, we're, we're together we're a team you know we sort of work together we're all one when we're on this field and you know it's a sort of joint responsibility rather than uh you know one or two you know really feeling that weight upon their shoulders um you know that was a big thing I think another thing actually was uh sort of the concept of life skills as well you know I've worked in various sort of youth talent uh, you know, academies, uh, development settings. I've worked for junior clubs. You know, I've worked in a load of other sports, and I'm, you know, now working at a first team environment. And a big thing for me as a swimmer was there was never really any investment into us. Sort of like you know things like confidence, communication skills, leadership. Uh, you know, teamwork. We we never really had that. It was all about us. You know, finishing first at a swimming race. Which when you look back, you know kind of silly really to think that maybe there was probably two of us out of a group of 20 that have actually gone on to achieve something within elite swimming so for me sort of coming into football even at 16 that was something I was very aware of you know uh, encouraging players to sort of speak amongst themselves and you know not fear that and try and develop the sort of leadership communication skills and even now you know up at Oakley Town and, and even with the, you know some of the coaches I've got uh, you know one of the things I encouraged them to do and they didn't like the idea of it at first but was 
delivering sort of online sessions with the players and you know I think we just mentioned off air I got a, a two or three of them decided to do a couple of uh, psychological based sessions talking about things like self-confidence or self-talk you know in front of 20 players and that's quite nerve-wracking when you're a sort of student coach coming through 18, 19, 20 but you know for me I'm always thinking how can we help these guys so that when they leave and maybe don't stay in coaching or they do they're taking that into their future so two, two of the big things for me there really. Yeah, I think something I've alluded to a lot in the podcast and it's similar to what you're saying there, I think the kind of being chucked into different environments as a coach is massive. Uh, I've got a similar background to you when I said the community-based stuff. It wasn't just football. You know, I'd be taking volleyball, netball, hockey, long jump, high jump, athletics, strength conditioning. And that probably set me up very well in terms of like being able to adapt and I think that is one of the things in coaching you have to be able to do it's very rare where you plan a session for 12 players and 12 players turn up so that ability to adapt is a, is a massive one and also and I, I imagine you found this um, as much as I have is we ask the players to be uncomfortable a lot in a lot of the things we're doing but how often as a coach are you willing to be uncomfortable so for this for me when we started or when I started really hard doing the, the podcast and asking difficult questions um, speaking to different people reaching out over social media to try and get guests promoting it editing it really tough uncomfortable at points making mistakes and looking like an idiot but it allows you to reflect better to what you're putting your kids through or players through and actually if you're asking them to stand up in a situation and be uncomfortable how often and how regularly are you willing to do that to show them actually that growth that being uncomfortable is where the growth happens Um, and I think if you can allude that to the players that actually you know that's really powerful in terms of them seeing that you're willing to do the same thing and you're willing to practice what you preach yeah 100% I mean it's that saying isn't it of you know not say as I do you know sort of do yeah sorry not do what I say say as I do uh you know, 100% with that. And that's something I massively learned. And, you know, by the way, exactly the same experiences for me, you know, putting yourself out on a podcast where you're sort of open to critics, really, aren't you? Uh, you know, around what people think and, you know, very much out of my comfort zone as well. And probably took me a good two or three series to actually feel comfortable now, sort of sat, you know, talking to you with this, you know, on air sign behind me and, and actually feeling confident in what you're saying and, and knowing what you're talking about. I mean, but, but you're dead right, you know. I think that's something I learned quite early on. I were asking players to, you know, do certain things. And, you know, I, you could just sort of tell they're, they're looking at you and thinking, but would you do that? And I always found that, I guess, when I've sort of changed that to become sort of proacting the sort of behaviours, if you like, or these life skills that I want my players to develop, it does engage more buying because they go, well, you know what, the gaffer's doing it, you know. That, that that's brilliant so he he clearly shows that we're, we're sort of in this together and it's all about us developing as people you know continually rather than you know well I'm not really willing to you know do this online presentation but you know you can do it because I know that's going to be good for you you know people don't really buy in like that do you like you say whether that's with your kids or your adults no and I had a really good discussion with Tanya I think it's, oh, I could be butchering her last name here Tanya Oxtoby, who's the Bristol City women's coach. Uh, she's recently been on maternity leave, but 
um, she was on a license and we were discussing and we were talking about centre halves going into wide areas um, in terms of defending and she was a defender and I made a, a flippant comment saying I'd hate being out there as a centre half I would have hated to have to go and deal with that and she goes me as well I would have hated it um, and she she recollected a situation where she'd asked uh, defenders to go and do the same and someone has said you wouldn't want to go out there you were a centre half you wouldn't want to do it and she was like that's a really fair point yeah. But this is the reason why. And I think sometimes it is alluding to the fact going, you know what? You're right. That would make me uncomfortable as well. However, the reason for it is this, or yeah. I'm going to support you in a different way. Or sometimes, and this is the answer I give to kids a lot when they say to me, can you demo something that I'm ridiculous and making them do or uh, something really challenging? I'll say, you want to be better than I was. Like, you know, I got released at eight years old. It wasn't bad, but you want to be a better player than I was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, give it a go. And if you fail, I'm not going to hammer you for it, um, which I, I think, you know, if you get those messages across to kids, it's, it's a really, really good one. Um, something you mentioned earlier, you linked around a lot around the, the academic side and using academia. And one thing is I've seen you kind of promoted quite a lot on your <clears throat> Apologies. Uh, one of the things you promote quite a lot on your, your um, site, etc., is like the game models. So for those people that haven't come across them extensively, do you just want to explain kind of what game models are and how you're using them or how you're providing them for people um, to be able to construct within like a, a team setting or game setting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it, it kind of stems really from, uh, I, I guess, you know, a sort of methodology that, uh, I, I think Mourinho, Jose Mourinho, is probably the most well known for it. But quite a few sort of disciples of Mourinho, so, you know, Villas Boas, uh, Brendan Rodgers, you know, all these sort of characters. Uh, but it, it comes from this approach of tactical periodization, which was originally developed by a professor of football, professor of sports coaching called Victor Frada over in uh, the University of Porto, uh, 1985, I think, when it first came out. And basically, what that says is. Uh, that we shouldn't train the sort of holistic areas of uh, tactical, technical, uh, psychological, uh, social, physical. We shouldn't train those areas separately, specifically within football, uh, you know, because I get a lot of sort of swimming coaches or diving coaches turn around to me and say, well, you know, all about the technical. But specifically within football, uh, that's what sort of this tactical periodization approach argues or this methodology. And the reason for that is it argues that's the case because it suggests that the football game is a tactical game. Uh, so, you know, you've got the, the four moments of the game, attack, defence, your two transitional phases. That That is that is the game of football in its simplest form, uh, regardless if it's that so you know, sort of senior level, junior level, uh, under fives, under tens, under fifteens. You know, it, it's you, if you watch any game of football, you'll see that. Uh, so basically, what Victor Ferrada argued in this tactical periodization approach was, uh, you know, if the game's tactical, why are sort of football training sessions being dominated by technical practice, or why are we going and doing these sort of team bonding sessions around, you know, communication or teamwork or that sort of stuff? He said we have to recognise uh, what every sort of tactical decision entails and what other elements do we need for that so uh, for example I always use the the sort of tactical decision of uh, attempting to score 
So let's say we're attempting to score by uh, getting into, you know, like sort of the, the goal 17, which is, you know, basically just in front of the keeper's area. Uh, there's obviously a tactical decision that comes with that. So, you know, sort of recognising uh, tactically, where do I position? Where, where you know, where, where, am, I, where, where am I going to get into this area? You know, when am I going to time my run? Uh, all that sort of stuff. But to do that tactical decision, there has to be a technical element, psychological, social and physical elements that come with that. So a uh, technical element. I need to be able to receive the ball. I need to be able to shoot uh, different types of shooting. You know, I might, uh, you know, need to chest the ball and, and then ha have hit a volley. I might just head the ball straight away. But technically, I need those skills to do that tactical decision. Uh, psychological, so, you know, I need to be confident. Uh, I might need to, you know, have a bit of leadership, uh, you know, game awareness. So I recognise, you know, sort of what's happening in terms of the play and positionally ready to, you know, sort of prime myself to move when that ball's coming in. Uh, sorry, from the cross, uh, social, like it was communication, you know, am I shouting to my teammates so that ball comes in? Uh, and then physical, obviously, you know, speed, uh, aerobic endurance, you know, I'm quick enough to get into that area, uh, power, strength, holding off my opposition player. And basically what, what tactical periodization argues is that to do that tactical decision, all those other holistic elements have to happen simultaneously. So then when we reflect training, he would argue, why do we do those independently? Context specific, we can argue, but that, that, that would be the thinking. So essentially where the game model comes in is it basically describes or explains the coach's philosophy. So coach's philosophies these days, you know, particularly in football, what I tend to see tend to be things like, uh, you know, my philosophy is all about possession or my philosophy is long ball or my philosophy is, you know, sort of high press. Uh, the problem with these, in my opinion, is that these are kind of just ideas based on sort of one moment or element of the game. So if we think about the playing philosophy of, you know, I, I like possession based football. Well, that's predominantly when we're in possession or, you know, if we take high press. Well, that's either when we've, you know, immediately just lost the ball and we're pressing high to try and regain it. Or you could also argue high press is, uh, you know, getting yourself high up the pitch in possession. Uh, same with long ball, you know, short passes, getting into the final third very quickly, uh, attempting to score with a short number of passes. But that's when we're attempting to score, really, or when we're in possession. And what a game model would, or, or sort of the purpose for the game model, is it sort of questions those ideas and say, well, that's great when you're in that moment of the game. But what do you, when you, you know, you're sort of in possession philosophy, but what are your players doing out of possession then? What are they doing when they're defending? What are they doing when they're trying to regain possession? Uh, you know, your high press, that's great out of possession, but what did he do in possession? So basically what that game model does is, firstly, it kind of dissects that philosophy and the coach, through building their game model, sort of determines what they want the player to do in sort of every single moment of the game. So uh, mind game model, uh, when we're in the attack, maintain possession. I want my players to maintain possession with diamonds or triangles, for example. I want them to uh, receive the ball, you know, through the lines, uh, play the ball through the lines, that sort of thing. So basically, that would be the purpose of a game model. Uh, and then from that, we obviously know how we're going to achieve that philosophy, which I think probably sort of at first team level for years, you know, in football, that was probably something that was missing. Uh, you know, you might argue completely different. That, that's probably what I felt. Uh, that, that, that's the purpose of the game model from that regard. And then it obviously presents us with a annual curriculum. So uh, you know, from that sort of tactical decision of, you know, I'll go again and how we're maintaining possession. So my decision of uh, diamonds and triangles, that then becomes the focus of our session. 
So for one of our micro sessions, we'll work on diamonds and triangles and that we, we, we fill that with, you know, populate that with activities. Um, you know, again, if it's sort of uh, thinking about, you know, how I want my team to uh, play my philosophy, you know, out of possession, that might be something like, OK, we've got to build defensive lines immediately, you know, from losing the ball. We'll work on that in a session. So essentially, that's what it's there for. And, I, you know, again, you might argue differently but you know when I sort of first came through coaching a lot of my sessions were well what should we work on tonight oh we struggled at this at the weekend you know we might work on passing or we might work on shooting but it was never really informed by a sort of idea behind it as like so essentially that's you know my sort of conception of what a game model is for and you know lots of descriptions on that online and on my website for anyone that is interested but but yeah hope that answers your question it it does answer my question i think it alludes to some really interesting points because i think from my experience um i've had to work around a curriculum for a long period of time so it does naturally have a tactical periodization within it um but i've seen that evolve over the last 10 years in terms of you know the content of it how we structure the weeks um, and I've seen different models. I've had Ben Bartlett um, have discussions with him, who's obviously great around constraints-based coaching. I definitely recommend people to go and um, see his work if they haven't. And one of the things he highlighted was in a week or in a couple of weeks is maybe to spend two weeks on a topic and then flip it for the last one. And then when you come, you work on almost six blocks and then you flip it the other way. So if you can imagine, if we're working for two, uh, three week periods, we're going to do playing out of the back for two weeks um, in, in different formats. The last week we'll be pressing from the front. Then we'll go through the different phases. And then when we return to the playing out from the back segment, the next time might be a week long playing out from the back, two weeks pressing. Um, and you can work from that. So I think um, from my experience, obviously going through the tactical curriculum, et cetera, it's been really, really interesting. But I, I have also seen, and I know it does happen quite a lot, like you've mentioned there, is go, oh, well, what did we struggle with at the weekend and kind of uh, uh, work around that? And um, you kind of feel like you're chasing your tail a little bit because there's always something to improve on where there's actually no structure to it. Mm. Um, I guess the thing for you, from you and your experiences with it, how far down the pyramid can you go with it? So if you're looking at uh, age groups wise, how how low down or high how high up can you drip feed that tactical periodization in and what would that look like at the different age groups i would argue that you can actually use it all the way through and a lot of people would probably disagree with me with that because they would say well actually though when we're in working with the under fives we've got to teach them the techniques uh, you know actually when we're in the under eights we've got to teach them the techniques um, you know under 15s difficult time sort of going through your boys testosterone uh, girls menstrual cycle we, we've got to do some form of psychological training and I agree with all of that but I think what a lot of coaches probably are just beginning to kind of understand with this tactical periodization element that again sort of going back to uh, you know what Victor Frada talks about all those elements are from the stem from the tactical and obviously you know there's a lot of stuff that may be going on at home and stuff that we can include but generally you know if you're trying to work on a tactical decision they are those four other elements come within that and obviously there's there's loads of different skills and traits that are required for that particular skill as well so you know in terms of if we just move on to the game model for a second 
Uh, yes, it can, through, in my opinion, be used for under fives, but obviously that would look really differently. And that's probably a misconception when I see a lot of these game models on Twitter that, you know, they've, they've took Borussia Dortmund's or Ajax's first team model and then take that into the under eights. That, that's actually a massive, massive misconception and actually can be quite dangerous because if we're expecting a, you know, an eight-year-old boy or eight-year-old girl to perform that first team tactical decision, well, there's no way they're going to be able to do it. Because at first team level, professional, elite level of sport, you know, 10, 20 years old or whatever, the eight year old won't be able to do it, you know, tactically, uh, technically, physically, psychologically. The decision has to be contextualized. So, you know, I think about uh, one of the early game models I did was actually for an under sevens team. It was very simple. It was just, you know, things like maintain possession element. The sort of principle was just find space, for example. Or, you know, in the sort of the attempt to score element, the principle was just, you know, try and get into the the final third and, you know, be creative. And I think that's, you know, sort of a big thing to mention with these models. They have to be relative to the context. They have to be relative to the age and stage of who you're working with. And even deeper than that, you know, are they there? Are the academy players? Are they players that have just got into football for the first time? Uh, and, and that's something that we really have to be aware of here. But going back to the sort of periodization element, I think... You know, how I sort of use mine at, at first team level now is, you know, everything we do is tactical, but that doesn't mean that we disregard the other elements. So, you know, for example, if I've got a player that's really struggling, you know, to pass the ball, then we might add a little rule in that sort of small sided game where for her, it's got to be two touch passing or she might be the, the joker player or the neutral players, I would call it. And the idea is, is that even though she's still in that sort of tactical active decision making practice, she's going to be past the ball a lot more. So it's trying to promote her passing ability, give her more opportunities to receive and pass the ball. Uh, likewise, the, the one I use for social is communication. So if we've got a player who we think, you know, first off, he's confident enough to talk in front of the team, but maybe he's lacking in communication, we might say, OK, you're the only player that can talk. And then that, well, from what I've seen in my experience, does promote the player talking again through that tactical element. And obviously, you know, through the ages, that's going to look very different. Uh, that would be how I use it at a first team level. But for me, I, I, I think it's beneficial, you know, all the way through. I think a, a big thing sort of within youth development, obviously, is the time you get. I mean, even with us now at first team, we only get one training session a week. But at youth development, where everything is actually development over winning, uh, actually, for me, sort of being in that tactical practice, that active decision making practice, whilst learning the other holistic areas that come with that, if you can adding a little rule that manipulates those other areas and promotes them even further, then that can be really beneficial. And you're not missing out on that decision-making element, but you're still doing the, the other elements too. So, yeah, to answer the question, yeah, I think it's about understanding what that looks like. And and that, I think there's still a lot of research going into that to, to help coaches out, really, because it is a very in-depth concept that has come through first-team level football. So I guess the question off the back of that, and something you would have noticed, I think everyone has, kids aren't playing out as much as they used to. Um, and I know as a kid growing up, I spent hours and hours and hours down the park playing in games, playing against older kids, smaller kids, like every shape and size. Do you think that part of the challenges around tactical periodization now come because kids maybe aren't doing as much games and stuff with their friends in the street compared to doing um, individualised practice or fortnight? 
more likely than not. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a big problem with it as well within youth development is, for whatever reason, because of that, there's then this conception that, right, the kids are too busy playing FIFA or Fortnite, like you mentioned, or, or Call of Duty or whatever. So we've got to then focus everything on the tech, the technical skills. Now, for me, I would actually argue that because if they're not going out and playing the game at all, then for me, there's even a bigger argument to be going and playing the game in training then and, and kind of supplement that. Um, you know, again, you know, I think about when I was a kid, we'd always do, you know, sort of passing against the wall, uh, practicing those those basic technical skills. And you're so right, you don't really see kids doing that anymore. And it's a massive shame, really, because I think, well, you could argue is that stopping creativity, but then you look at the England team now and you're probably thinking, well, not at all. But I would, I, I would still argue that it makes more sense to be doing that sort of tactical games-based uh, approaches within youth development with still a focus on technical as well through that. Uh, you know, I know a lot of coaches would completely disagree with me there and say, no, it's in sort of 50-50 balance importance. Uh, but I know the, the FA four-corner model, you know, would sort of differ as well and sort of say it's got to be an equal focus within the session. But for me, I think encouraging those kids to be playing football for a starter, I, I do think that the technical comes through. I think it's about how we are managing practice or manipulating practice for how much of that technical comes through and recognising that, you know, if this small-sided game, if, if the kids are struggling with it, how do we really digress that then to then really help, you know, promote that technical practice? You know, if they're struggling to pass, how can we just manipulate that game so it's more appropriate for their age and stage? But again, I, I think a big problem with it is that it's a, a big word, tactical periodization. I think that because it's came from first team level or, you know, professional level, Mourinho using it, that it kind of gets a reputation of, well, that's what you do at first team level. But for me, I, I think it can be really beneficial at youth team development. But again, that's really new research coming through. And, you know, hopefully in a couple of years, there might be something that, that helps support that argument. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting concept because I'll be honest, I do do isolated technical practice um i also do do some 1v1 type practices which we'll go over in a minute because i think it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on that um but what it a lot of the work we do will be based around areas of a pitch or decisions in in, in a pitch um and the moves will link to that area of the pitch so it might be for example um, we're doing a 1v1 practice. The move of the week might be, everyone knows, double scissors. So we'd set up our 1v1 practice to really encourage the double scissors or single scissors. You get three points if you can do it and then scoring that goal. And then we'd start manipulating where the goals are so that if it's in wide areas this week, it would be a type of cross that's coming in rather than a shot, etc. Um, so I think one one thing we've probably got better at as as a club, and I think probably as as a um, whole coaching, is that how do we link it back to the game? So if we are doing isolated practice, how can we ensure that it does link back to back to the game? Um, and that doesn't have to be first team level. That can be an under four. What does an under four see in their game at the moment? Can we link this practice we're doing back to that game? Um, which I think is something that, as I said, we're getting a lot better at 
And I think there will continue to be Greshams out. And I think we'll we'll end up stealing from other sports in terms of how they do it. I look out in the States, I think some of the stuff they do regarding individualised plans, etc., and making it relevant to the game is really good. Mm. Um, so I think there's a, there's a long way to go with it. Um, but I do see improvements in terms of trying to make sure the practices we do, even if they are isolated technical practices or skill practices, they're relative to something for the boys or make it fun. Yeah. One of the one of the ones that the kids love that I set them over the summer. Really simple. You've got two cones, your end that are two yards apart. Your mum, dad, brother, sister, whoever stands 15 yards away or 20 yards away, 25 away. Same. And um, if you go, if you shoot through their one with your weaker foot, it's three points. If they shoot, if you shoot through with your stronger foot, it's one point. Um, And the first session, uh, the first thing might be you have to shoot from outside your cones. So it's working on shifting the ball across your feet. Next one might be you've got to use both feet. The next one might be you've got to shoot through both sets of cones. So it's a fun little game for them. But we're working on a technical practice. And I think that those types of situations where you can make, if you are doing it as individualized or as pairs, something that's fun for the kids, you're always going to get more buy-in. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't disagree with any of that, by the way. And I think that's sometimes where people sort of, you know, oh, he's, he's so invested in this approach. He can't see anything else. You know, I, would, I wouldn't die for tactical periodization in, in that sort of sense. Uh, but for me, that's that's representative practice, isn't it? Um, you know, thinking about where, we, okay, we're doing technical practice and it might be isolated, but we're actually thinking about the areas of the pitch because we know when it gets to the Sunday, that's going to click in the player's mind of what to do in that specific area. So that's representative. I think where the isolated practice traditionally uh, gets a lot of, sort of negative reviews in the literature is that if you're just passing in pairs although that is developing the technical skill it's maybe not focusing on anything else so although you're going to become a better passer it's not engaged in any actual you know thoughts or sort of uh you know perception perceiving where i am you know how this sort of relates to the game whereas actually you know there's an argument for what you're saying there around okay it, it is technical practice and it's heavy on that but we're thinking about the areas of the pitch. We're linking that still to the game. And if you think through doing that, that is still a decision-making element because the player is subjected to, you know, where they are in that environment, sort of the perception of, okay, you know, I, I recognise where I am. I recognise how this relates to the game. I think you can argue that still, you know, it, it works. And again, there's not necessarily a right or wrong key. I mean, you know, one of the uh, fundamental... Uh, so our implications, I'd say, for tactical periodization that I don't necessarily agree with is that it would suggest that all you should do is the tactical and everything else sort of filters through naturally. I actually disagree with that. I think you still have to, if you're using this game space, I do think you have to add certain uh, rules that focus on one of those holistic elements. I think it's really naive to just assume that, OK, uh, they'll get better at communication or they'll get better at leadership through doing this small-sided game. I don't think that works. I think you have to actually, you know, be aware of that. And that would be, you know, you know a, an argument against tactical periodization and and I guess the sort of games-based approach. But 
what I've started to do quite a lot in the last two or three weeks is, and probably where I'm moving away now, I am probably moving away from tactical periodization and thinking more about representative practice because for me, that's the sort of thing above, if you like tactical periodization and probably where, uh, you know, the methodology, games based, isolated, that kind of for me all comes under representativeness. And I think that is a really important concept, uh, you know, within any practice really. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of work on that at the minute, and I think all the research kind of points into the direction of if, as long as your session relates to something that's going to happen in the game, that's going to be really beneficial for the player. And I think that's probably from what you've just said is where the academies are, are going now. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things, I mean, we listen, we do the isolated practice. Some of the keep up challenges that the kids can do in my end are incredible. I think the purpose for it is, particularly younger age groups, is familiarity on the ball, but also developing practice habits and developing uh, psychological outcomes. So yeah. imagine as a five-year-old, we're asking you to do keep-ups and you've got to try and get to 20 by next week and you keep dropping it on 18. That's hard. That's really hard. Like, um, and I think for, for us, one of the things we do with the practice culture is encouraging them to have resilience, encouraging them to work hard on it for those alternative outcomes. So we want them to be familiar on the ball and, you know, doing all these practice types are going to help with that. But it's also the psychological factors that I think alongside it that really, really help. Mm. Um, so, yeah, as I said, the lads are incredible, some of the stuff we do, and we will keep driving that because we want them to be good on the ball. We want to be comfortable. We want to challenge them. We can also work them really hard in those areas. But it's so that further down the line, we can then focus on this representative practice. So if I look into what we're doing and, and whatnot at the moment, I think this will probably give you quite a good example. Recently did a um, presentation with a colleague of mine um, in kind of a, a session share, if you like, with Inter Milan, um, Athletic Bilbao, ourselves and RB, no, not RB, Rebel uh, Salzburg. Um, so it was really good, got different practices from everyone they talked for what I do. And we kind of broke our 1v1s down into three elements, if you like. So for me and, and my colleague, and again, people can freely disagree with this if they want to, we, we kind of looked at it in three, three areas. So the first one is to develop a skill, so skill development. So kind of what I alluded to earlier, we're going to set this 1v1 up um, to try and help them develop this skill with a bit of decision making in it so again the scissors one's a good example another one's is a good a hook turn is a perfect example so you've got two goals 10 by you know 10 by 8 grid for example the ball gets played into one area um he dribbles if he does a hook turn past the line and scores in the opposing goal he gets double points or she gets double points. Really good way of getting them to identify when the hook turns on, think about your principles in terms of getting away at speed, protecting the ball, etc. Really easy way to develop skill. There's thousands of them online that will help develop that skill. Um, the second one, um, which I am a believer in, I think at points, and I think that kids need to be taught it, and um, is to win, is to compete. So win might be the wrong word. To compete is the word I'm on about. So you might have a little Q4 who physiologically is going up against a Q1, might find it really, really challenging, really difficult because the Q1's are early maturer. 
okay, we still need to teach him how to compete. We still need to teach him to try and win the ball back. Still need to teach him to um, develop those skills of shielding the ball or trying to get through the goal, etc. He might not be able to do it at this moment in time, but we still need to teach him how to do that. And I, I think at times in youth development, we can be naive in thinking kids don't keep score. They absolutely know what's going on. They know if they won and know if they've lost. So for me, I, I, I like to harness that and, you know, get to a way where my groups really compete. And the reason I say that is as a, as a person or a player, how do you get better? We get better by being pushed. How do you get pushed? Well, by the defender competing to get the ball back. So all of a sudden you end up with a group that is highly competitive and make each other improve. Um, and to say, listen, from my perspective, it has to be done in the right way. It has to be controlled and managed in the right way. Um, but I think what you can do is develop a group that aren't worried about if they win or lose, but are worried about the compete inside of it. Yeah. So they're not worried by the result. What they are worried about is today, have we competed? Yeah. Um, and if you've done that, then that's, for me, is, is a really good example um, of, of how you can use that and harness that. And that's a really good life lesson for them to have. It basically shows them, regardless of the outcome, you keep being resilient and you keep trying, which I think are great life skills. Yeah. And then the last one for, for, for us, and this is really interesting, interesting one is looking at pitch geography um and developing a 1v1 or potentially a 2v1 or where the modern game's going um potentially you know 1v3s or 1v4s and developing that into our practice um so a really ex simple example of this would be um we've got a feeder who um starts in central pitch um has got an area that he can hit behind the fullback. Uh, so centre midfielder, got an area he can hit behind the fullback to try and score a goal. That might be your starting point. The fullback is up against a winger. So the winger now has to either make a movement of, is he going to try and run in behind or is he going to come feet? Is he going to go out to in, in to out? Um, and you can develop that for all different types of ways. So, you know, then we can begin to add in those drills. As we said, you're looking at the types of skills and stuff they're using, what foot they used to deliver, what type of movements are worth double points and the constraints you put on it. And then you can drip feed more in. So all of a sudden that feeder now, after he's fed in, he can come and play along a bounce line. Yeah. So now there's a decision making element in terms of for the wide player. Does he create space for this player or does he? close that space down is it a bounce or is it a ball over the top um beyond that you might then begin to add recovery defenders in or center halves they do something where they have to clear a ball from one area now they come and engage so now your winger's got a decision to make am i going to try and beat this player quickly 1v1 am i going to look to bounce a pass in midfield am i going to fancy my chances at a 1v3 and you this reciprocal practice where it's constantly going round and round is giving him decisions that are re relative to his position and his challenge in the game. Um, and I think this for us is a way I think a lot of clubs are beginning to go is understanding the pitch geography matters to the type of 1v1 practice or 1v3 or whatever's going on and challenging the kids, again, linking back to the tactical side, the tactical outcomes within what is a really, really 
scaled down version of it. Um, and we, we've listen, we've seen some great success in it. There's loads more work that's going to be done on that area, but I think moving forward, it's going to be something that's going to have real benefits in in the pro game and the type of practice kids can do at home. So when we then start saying to the kids that have been great with the keep ups and the ball striking at six, seven, eight, nine, okay, now we want you to go and practice this at home. They've got that practice culture to fall back on. So now they can go and set those 1v1s or 1v3s up at home and they can go, yeah, I'm going to practice this for 40 minutes. And we should see them really taking ownership of their development, which is really what we want. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's that, that's absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, the, the, the first point I picked up on around, you know, teaching them, uh, you know, things like the hook turn, there is the sort of area of uh, ecological psychology or ecological dynamic sort of thinking, which I should always put my hand up and say this is just my conception of knowledge before I get a, you know, any lecturers listening and hammering me after. And I seem to get that on Twitter, uh, Michael. I don't know if it's the same for you, but uh, what, what, what that sort of argument suggests is that this sort of games-based approach is all good, but you can only see certain opportunities for action. So you can only... Uh, perceive the ability to dribble around a player and get one-on-one and score past the keeper. You can only perceive the ability to play a pass to, you know, your winger that's that's running through past the defender. That that sort of uh, school of thought or school of thinking would suggest that you can only do that decision if you have them skills in your locker subconsciously. It's not about knowledge of what you can and can't do, but you only see that if you have the ability to play that pass or you have the ability to uh, dribble around players because if you can't dribble, you're not going to receive that opportunity for action. And that's where that research, I think, kind of poses uh, maybe some of the sort of tactical periodization methodology. Uh, so that's really interesting. And picking up to your point about development versus winning, which I think is something that is is still a hot debate, a topic. And, and honestly, within youth development, I'm, I'm always like this with it. And I've worked in a, a couple of private football academies and you've had some that were massive on development and nothing on winning. You've had some that are massive on winning and, and not so much on development. And and I've always found that a really difficult one, to be honest, of, of sort of which way to go and, and still do. What I will say is that I, I remember reading a paper talking about, so analysing the practice uh, structures and coaching behaviours used in, in the top five uh, football countries of the world, youth development. So England, uh, France, Spain, Portugal, Germany. So it was Spain and Portugal was all about lots of game based, lots of small sided games, lots of that sort of nice tick attack of football, which probably, you know, what what Spain, Barcelona was sort of fond of between you know, 2008, 2012. Uh, France, I can't quite remember what France were. I remember England was sort of subjected to a, a lot of that sort of isolated practice, what we were saying. Germany was kind of a mix of both, but there was a higher element of that, not necessarily about winning but being a competitor. So, you know, they, they sort of argued that yeah, small-sided games is great and we've got to be able to play, but we still need to have that element of, of being efficient, being better. You know, I've got a story for you on this go on, to, go on. to prove this point. So I don't like alluding back to my playing days because it's a long time ago. I was rubbish, hence why I'm not a professional footballer now. So it's not, not a thing. But we... Um, at age, I think 17, 18, went out to Germany on pre-season tour. And um, I can't remember the name of the place. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, 
But we ended up staying at the same place Borussia Dortmund were. Um, so Borussia Dortmund are there, not the first team, the youth team, same as us. And we were playing games like we went on to play Bayern Munich on that trip, all that type of stuff. Great. Um, and our S&C coach went, I'm going to go and watch the um, Borussia Dortmund session. It's their first session. They're going to go and watch. It's great. Comes back after an hour. I was like, oh, how was it? What did they do? He's like, it's terrible. I was like, what do you mean? He said, they've just run round the pitch for 45 minutes straight, <laughs> done penalties and then finished. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So like, I was a little bit shocked. I'm thinking Brescia Dortmund, Mustard, they're going to be really good. Um, and obviously in the evening, the teams are in there. So the coaches got chatting and they asked the Brescia Dortmund guys, they were like, why, why did you do that? Um, and it, granted, this is like 12 years ago, etc. But he said, for us, the psychological factor is more important than anything else. Yeah. He said, so I'm not fussed where they come in the run. He said, but I can see who's trying and who's not. I can see who's wanting to develop and who's not. He said, 45 minutes running isn't fun for anyone. But have we got a guy at the front who knows he's quicker than everyone else and is coasting? Or have we got a guy in the middle who's busting a gut to get better? He said, that 45 minutes would tell me more about my players than any technical or tactical drill. Yeah. And that stuck with me to this day. I'm like, that's fascinating. And yeah. I, I, I have this discussion with the S&C department sometimes, um, not with the younger ones, with the older ones. I was like, do we ever just run them? to run them and they were like what do you mean i was like we do a lot of running which involves footballs and games and stuff i said which is great and i agree you know Mourinho brought that across it's a way better way of doing it i said but sometimes for me personally i needed to feel like i've been run to know that i would be fitter come the 85th 86th 87th minute i said so do we ever infrequently just run them for the psychological benefits yeah. of being ran and it being hard um i get yeah that's an open question but i think it alludes to what you said there regarding germany having that manner of there is a bit of competition and winning and psychology in there yeah i mean i mean and i, I just found it you know like you know, I, I find that absolutely fascinating and I can remember reading that paper and, and the sort of thoughts, because they interviewed, I can't remember for the life of me who was the author, but they interviewed the coaches. And similar reasonings, but it's all about the psychology element. I don't care how we play football. I don't care what the football looks like. I don't care if it's pretty. I don't care if it's ugly. All I care is if we win that, you know, under-17s World Cup trophy or whatever it was. And that's just a relentless mindset that clearly is coming from the top of German football filtering down to the youth coaches and you would suspect filtering down to the players and probably you know refers to who filters through and, and progresses up those age groups and, and who doesn't and i think that's potentially something that over in here we've maybe always sorry over here in england maybe we've never really thought up until recently enough about the psych psychological aspects i know a lot of the stuff we spoke about in lectures you know sort of nice coming through the undergraduates that this psychological element is often forgotten about, not just in football, in any sport. You, you often forget about it because you're that focused on doing the tactical or that focused about doing the technical. You don't actually really think about, you know, things like mental strength, you know, desire to, to keep going in. And I, I can remember listening to uh, Robert Hoof, you know, obviously ex-Chelsea, Stoke, Leicester, Middlesbrough player, and he was 
seeing, seeing, uh, you know, when he'd like watch the, the, the academies and, and the players coming through. And he said, what we always say about England is, you know, you just, you, you can break because you never seem to work on the mental side enough. You know, there's not that sort of ruthlessness within you. You, you know, we know that if you're one nil down, we've got you. You're thinking about it. And I, and I just found that absolutely fascinating. And I wonder if, you know, like you, does that need to be more included? I think obviously there's things you've got to be aware of there, like running, you know, I don't think you could do that with an under 10s, for example, running around for 45 minutes because then, you know, that's quite <laughs> potentially a bit traumatic for them players. But like you say, at 17, 18, when, you know, mentally those players are progressing through, is that something that we need to, you know, add more in to our curriculum? I mean, you know more than me if that, you know, how much of that's being implemented now. So it is now. I'd say there's an active effort within clubs, within national teams to really focus on that. I do it in a really simple way. I do something called 1v1 Wednesdays with my under 11s, or I did. They love it, by the way. That This is their favourite session of the week. They will run into the session um, and say to me, are we doing 1v1 Wednesday today? So although this is going to sound a little bit uh, brutal, it, it, they love it. So it's 20 minutes of 1v1s. Um, really simple game that I'll give you an example of. I might have one grid of 40 by 40. Um, it's quite a big area. And then I've got 10 gates, which are just used through flat cones, flat cones or, or whatever you want to use, flat discs. Um, and then everyone has a partner and you're in that area. You get a point by going through a gate. And then if, if I'm doing a turn that week, it might be, uh, step over outside. If you do a step over outside and go back through the gate, um, you get three points. Mm. Whatever everything. Big area, 40 by 40. For under 11s, again it, again, it might be smaller than that, depending on numbers, depending on how many you got in there, etc. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But if you dribble the ball out, it's the opponent's ball. They've got five seconds to get the ball back into play. Might play for 30 seconds, might play for 90 seconds. And then they keep count. Winners find another winner. Losers find another loser. And then we go again. And it, it, it ebbs and flows. And you get some that are fouls, some that aren't fouls, some honest, something. But what it does, I've, I found within my groups, is they're able to learn how to deal with failure quicker. Because you've gone from losing a game. They might have... and. So I no draws are allowed. How do you decide? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Okay, that's how they decide. Rock, paper, scissors. So you might have just lost a game 20 seconds earlier by maybe 20 goals or on rock, paper, scissors against the person who's top with you. So you were both on four points each. They're top with you. Now you've got to go and play another game 20 seconds later. How do you regain your composure as a 10 or 11 year old to focus on the task? And what I normally find in the groups at the start, it's tough. Yeah. You know, you get some players that find it really difficult, really challenging. Come and speak to me. Maybe occasionally foul people. Maybe they get upset. And then that's the really opportune moment as a coach and a skillful coach will come in and, I've done it well at points, not done it well at others, as everyone does. But that's your golden moment when you can go in and really support that player to understand that, be resilient. How can I support you? What's your next job? What's your next task? 
and that can support them with that. So now I've found with my mm-hmm. groups, they're really resilient. We go a goal or two behind, they're like, it's fine. You know, I'm yeah. doing this in 90 seconds in righties 1v1s. We've got another yeah. 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, and we, we play quite a lot of uh, tournament football with ours. So they'd lose a game and we're on again in four minutes. And I'd say to them, 1v1 Wednesdays, you don't get four minutes. Think how psychologically ready we can be in four minutes. And that drop off is a lot less. Um, and I also was on a call with a guy called Mickey Harris. Funny enough, he's just become the under 18s um, individual coach at Southampton, but was formerly of the FA. And now the psychological effects within uh, the sessions are coming out. So they, they have occasional things called zapping sessions. So they will know to psychologically strain a player or a series of players um, to then support them after. So it might be on that day a simple little thing of giving fouls and not giving fouls against that player or being a bit more command style on that player for the day. Mm. And then it's not a case of leaving it and that player going off the pitch going, the gaffer is absolutely hammering me here. This is crazy. It's going to him after. How did you feel during that session? And then they would say, well, I got really frustrated. And we go, we could see that. Look at the video. Here's two or three times in your body language we could see that you were getting frustrated or normally you'd recover here and you didn't. Okay, So this is a a teaching moment for us to say when you're feeling that, what can we do? What can we do to refocus you? I know that all blacks use a thing with hairbands around their wrists. They've also used psychological thing of looking at a point in the stadium, etc. Um, so there's loads of different aspects of things you can use, but to get them to learn that you're going to get frustrated in a game, but how quickly can you get from that frustration to back on task? Yeah. Um, so that yeah it's something that is being used more and more it's happening at the national team going through all academies of the zapping sessions i i haven't used exclusively because obviously with the younger ones it's a bit more challenging with them you don't want to obviously upset them but um i think that it's something that's definitely going to improve and as i said that little drill there that i do with my 11s i've done with under nines all the way through to under 23s it's a really simple session, but has some really good outcomes if you manage it correctly. Yeah, I mean that's fascinating, and, and I hundred percent agree with everything with that. I had a, a, a chap called uh, Ben Strafford, who is a lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University. And his area is around donor sports. I don't know if you've ever come across donor sports. Essentially, that's a concept around. Uh, so you know, if we're playing football, uh, sometimes that's very sport specific. So. You know, playing a sport of futsal, it sort of shares movement repertoire, uh, repertoires, uh, shares, you know, sort of the psychological, social repertoires as well. Uh, you know, maybe futsal, it's in a tight space, so it allows ball manipulation in tight spaces, that that sort of thing. But he was talking about parkour as a donor sport for football. And I, I found it, I actually read the paper about a year ago and I found it fascinating. And he was talking about, and I, sh- I should say that he's not saying that he's promoting this, but, you know, Children failing in parkour, potentially falling off, you know, when they're jumping. I'm not saying they're jumping buildings, these kids, by the way. But, you know, sort of parkour style activities. Uh, you think about the playground, you know, jumping on, on tyres and tyres and falling falling off and stuff like that. That is developing the psychological side massively, learning that, like you say, failing, learning to fail at an early age that potentially football's not maybe providing that or maybe isn't the focus of coaching sessions at junior sort of grassroots level. 
that's helping those players. And I found that absolutely fascinating because I was listening to, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're a fan of the High Performance Podcast, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I was listening to uh, the interview they did with Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and he was talking about in training that they deliberately referee badly and I thought, brilliant. I thought that's absolutely brilliant. And about two or three weeks ago, reflecting on that donor sport conversation and thinking about representative practice, I thought to myself, the representative practice, it's often thinking about, you know, what is the tactical? Is it, is it representing what's happening on the Sunday? But actually, that is involving the the psychosocial and the, the uh, psychobehavioural, as we would call it, so psychological and social aspects as well. So, you know, we had a coaches meeting last night and speaking to a couple of coaches and I was saying, you know, we have to think about what is happening on the Sunday and actually think about encouraging that into our practice with the, you know, with the first team. So things like our league, you know, and I'm not slagging off referees here, but, you know, being involved for a couple of months, there were some really bad referee decisions. And the previous team I was at, we had a couple go against us and our team had gone, mentally gone because a decision had gone. It might have been a penalty, for example, and it had gone. They couldn't cope with that decision. And actually, I realised that, well, we have to, you know, referee badly in training to prepare and mentally fill that. Uh, things like game management, you know, thinking about scenarios, um, you know, something that we're going to incorporate when we get back on Wednesday is, is is having, you know, for the last 30 minutes of that game, putting in scenarios, OK, so you're 2-0 ahead, what are you going to do? You've got 30 minutes to go, you're 10, you're 10 men up or, or 10 women up, as you know, in my case. Or, uh, you know, you're 2-0 down, 10 minutes to go, you've got to win to win that cup final. And that sort of, again, linking to my previous club, I can remember we went 3-0 up in this game, suddenly conceded two, and our team were all over the place. It, it, you know, shocked them. They didn't know how to deal with that, thinking about sort of mental toughness, you know. And I can remember we had to really dig deep in that game and they'd learned a lot from it. And I can remember thinking, OK, we've got to replicate that in training now. So we've got to teach them that, OK, you know, resilience, you're 2-0 down, You've got 10, 12 minutes, you know, the game model, this passing, passing philosophy kind of goes out of the window. Now, what are you going to do? How are you going to solve that and try and win? And that's something that, you know, for me, kind of just even reflecting on that in the last three or four weeks is massive. And, you know, I've been a coach for eight years and never actually really thought about that. I played, never really thought about that. And and I think like what you're saying now with the work the academies are doing, you know, you, you know, you said at the start that parents might think that's quite brutal, but actually it's preparing them for the game because at some point they're going to come across those situations. They might come across an opposition player talking trash to them at the game. That happens. You know, it happened to a lot of the, a lot of my players and, and they, they didn't know how to deal with it. And we've had to think, you know, about little things in training. How can we help replicate that situation so when it does happen on the game that it's not going to affect them? they're still going to play. So, I mean, I find all that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's it's the mat. Listen, that session, it's really hard work physically. That's probably the, the most challenging bit because you're doing 90 seconds off, 90 seconds off. Psychologically is as well. But I think the management of it, if you get it right, the outcomes off the back of it are, are so good. Um, the scenario game-based stuff is brilliant. Um, I'm actually doing a little bit of work at the moment that I'm hoping to get on to the podcast itself in terms of provide just some um scenario based games for people so there will just be some pdf type stuff from all different sports um that, that, that will go out and again for me it will be focusing on maybe high profile games and using that as a template to do it but like you said you're two nil up or you're two nil down or um 
a good one thing is you've got a magic man. You've got Messi. If he if he um, scores, your goal's worth two. So they have to come up with strategic aims to try and get that player to score, etc. Um, but yeah, so doing a little bit around that. But those sort of scenario games are great and they can be useful really, really well. Um, I don't know if you've had any experience of this. Have you taken your groups and done a different sport with them? Not yet. It's something I'm desperate to do. I've, I've, I, what we have done is, I don't know if you've come across uh, teaching games to understanding. Right? That's that's quite a, a sort of prevalent one. That talks about the idea of game sampling and things like just, okay, it's a football session, but for 10 minutes, I'm going to give you a netball or I'm going to give you a handball and we're going to do handball. And that's something we have done. And the players, especially when you're deep-rooted football culture at amateur level, they're looking at you like, what on earth is kicking off here? Why, why are we doing that? But it's exactly the same game, isn't it? And you mentioned there the strategic tactical thinking. It, it promotes that because the sort of, we would call it the internal logic of the game, the tactical element. It's exactly the same as football. It might be with your hands or with your feet, the difference, but very similarities. I mean, I mean that would be something we've done, but yeah, I'm good to do that. The inv- so the invasion game stuff obviously is directly linkable and stuff. Yeah. I saw a bit from Van Basten the other day that said he wants to scrap offside. So if he does that, we'll be knocking on hockey's door trying to get them to tell us all the uh, tricks and stuff. But the reason I ask and something that I think is really good with it is it challenges your group dynamic. So I imagine with it within your groups, as everyone, you've got some players that are maybe progressing quite well at this moment in time and those that maybe need a little bit more support. Um, and within every social group, there is hierarchies. You know, there is um, social hierarchies and whatnot. What I've found previously um, when, when doing this, particularly with, with the older age groups that I've worked with, is if you put them into situations where you challenge that hierarchy by playing a different sport. So you might have your top player is an outstanding footballer, but isn't great at tennis. So now you've got someone who maybe is middle of the pack, but he's or she an absolute boss at tennis, really, really good. It challenges your dynamics within your group. And it's again, this is a really good way where you can you can, you know, challenge individuals within the group to say one as a group. So how are we going to deal with this? So is this person who's now really good going to start gloating? Because if you do, it's going to when it comes back around to football, it's going to present some issues. Or are you going to do some peer to peer teaching? So are you going to try and help this individual? So then all of a sudden that transfers to the pitch where you're struggling with something. So they go, oh, actually, I've got your back. You help me with this during tennis. I'm going to do the same. How does that person or player deal with the resilience of not being hierarchical best in the group? So now they're in the middle. How do they deal with that? So it's actually a really interesting concept to to challenge the social hierarchy by just removing them from a different sport and uh, you find some really unique outcomes and it's really good for the group um, because it it can almost be a team bonding exercise where you get people to support and help one another so then they do it when they go back into a football context. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely brilliant and I think that's something like you say, you see that all the time with the hierarchy and that's always been something where I've often thought how do we change that not necessarily that it's always a bad thing 
But how do we get the players sort of at the bottom of that hierarchy? Maybe the, the resulting effect, effect on, on that hierarchy is that they don't feel as confident or they don't demand the ball as much or, uh, as much or don't want the ball as much. How do we you know, go about changing that? And that's absolutely fascinating because, like you say, it's it, it's completely opposing, isn't it, sort of strengths and weaknesses? I mean, you might have that all-round sportsman or all-round sportswoman that, you know, is good at everything. It's very rarely the case now, like you say, with sort of, you know, kids coming through and, and not being subjected. So, I mean, I mean, that is that that is absolutely fascinating. Certainly something I'll be looking to try at some point in the future. Yeah. And listen, a lot of people are a lot of good at different sports and you will get those sports, uh, women or men. From my perspective, you can find one they're not good at. So be it judo or boxing or cross country or bobsleigh or and again, this is where I was really fortunate at Bath. We had access to a lot of different stuff where we could challenge people. But you can find something. You can find something that they aren't, you know, the leader at. And it is a real good learning experience. And if you if you can do it in the right way, it really supports your team dynamic because you can really pull them together to go, you know what, when I wasn't a thing, these players supported me. So now I'm going to do the same. Um, so yeah let me know how it goes to that because I'd be interested to see my experience of it has been really really positive mm, no definitely well and I think that 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 links in doesn't it with with that uh, sort of a conceptual idea of sort of creating leaders or, or maybe traditionally only having one or two leaders I've seen a quite a few debates on that on Twitter uh, last couple of days also I don't know if you have but I've always found that really interesting with leaders and I've always again probably going through to my own experiences you know coming up as a swimmer I've always been really keen for for having everyone develop as a leader. And at times you found by doing certain sort of tasks in football, whether that's, you know, I can remember one player we had, 19, just give her the captaincy. I really like what she was about in terms of her attitude, respectful. And that just turned her into this wonderfully fantastic leader. And I was thinking, well, how can we do, how are there more ways that we can do that? Because I, I don't really believe you should only have one leader and everyone follows. I think everyone should learn to be a leader. I think that's a really important skill. So the, the sort of concept of that, you know, sort of putting people out of their comfort zones, and you're so right with that, by the way. You know, I think about with me when I was younger, whenever we were in the swimming pool at school, I was, I was the boss. You know, I was the man. But then when we went and played cricket, you, you, you feel so low, don't you? You know, and 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 that's fascinating. And, and that was a good thing that I can remember that school did for us, you know, with that PE curriculum is that because it was so wide ranging, you had the footballers that were really good, but then you got into tennis or volleyball or archery or whatever it was. And that had changed. And there'd be someone that had just come out of nowhere, you know, one of the kids and suddenly the the boss. And then, and that's what I was sort of gave a lot of credit to our primary school is they really helped with that hierarchy and challenge that so so i mean that's absolutely fascinating i mean definitely definitely be something i'll uh, be introducing i mean be interesting for any of my players listening to this thinking oh god what's he going to do here <laughs> yeah when you've got them kayaking down rivers and stuff going right. well i did say i was going to take you out of the comfort zone hiking up the yorkshire dales or something <laughs> yeah no it is good it is um a really useful tool and definitely something that i'll, I'll keep doing within my coaching for sure Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, I mean, what a conversation we've had there. <laughs> How long have we gone here? Full hour and a half into it. I mean, I think, judging on the fact that in, in this podcast, we, we kind of just didn't say, didn't we, that we'll just sort of throw a couple of ideas to each other. I mean, I think we've I think we've discussed some some really, you know, key sort of important issues there, but also 
spoke a lot of different sort of ideas and ways coming through. I mean, I wasn't even aware of really some of the the work the academies are doing. And to be fair, probably been quite critical in the past. You know, a, 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 I guess my sort of traditional thinking of what I've seen academies do, you know, up and around uh, my area. But uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that that's all absolutely fascinating, and, and certainly, you know, don't discourage uh, unopposed uh, practice. You know, I do see the. Uh, the, the the wealth and reason for that and do you think that can be really beneficial i think a, a big thing i always say on my podcast is it's always context specific isn't it and i think that's the key thing the listeners have to be aware of you know what works in your context and and, and what is appropriate and what isn't yeah for sure and i think it, you know that that's the skill of a coach or a practitioner is understanding what what works in your context what your players need right now and then the support and plan support that you're going to provide them with, um, which I think, you know, is vital as a coach. We are there to support them. It isn't about us. Um, uh, like uh, the phrase of, you know, it's them when they win and it's me when I, when we lose, like as a top performance coach, that would be a big one for me. The play, it's all about the players and we do well, you know, it is down to them. And then if we do lose, I bring it very much on myself rather than burdening them with it. Again, that's not so much for the younger ones because it is about development. Um, and then, yeah, you said we, we've obviously gone loads of different topic, topics. One thing I will say uh, for my listeners and for yours, um, Graham Mills on Twitter, which is G underscore Mills 84, did some great work around individual development plans um, and using kind of a FIFA style template. Um, for those individual development plans something I've used a lot before we've critiqued it a little bit for ours which if we do another one of these contexts uh, conversations we can go into further um, but I'd recommend for anyone who wants to make it individualized um, that's a great there's great resources on there and he's got it for different sports not just not just football um, and listen as I said academy football is going through a massive transition at the moment I think particularly at Southampton, I'm really fortunate. We've got a lot of very open-minded, very dedicated people. I can understand why uh, previously, having been through it as a player, why there's some negative connotations around um, around academy football. But from my experience working in the environment I've been in, I've been incredibly fortunate to be around some people that you know, me, me and some of the guys have got off an hour and a half call this morning talking about the low block. That's all it was. And we're having another conversation next week and, you know, conversations daily about how we're going to support these players and the, the care that goes into it. So whilst there is always room for improvement, I think as a as a culture, we're going into a really good space at the moment where, you know, they're trying to steal ideas from everyone. The number of study visits people are going on for other clubs or other institutions. Um, like we went to the Royal Ballet Company to try and take ideas. It, you know, we're really fortunate at the moment that I think it's going for a massive transition to really, you know, individualise, holistic environment. How can we support these players to do more and, and, and do better and make them good people as well as good players? So, uh, long may that continue because I think that's that's better for everyone yeah definitely and I think from you know speaking to people like yourself and uh, you know a lot of the coaches within academies that that has the, the shifted uh, sorry the focus has shifted you know uh, you know six seven eight years ago when I was looking at you know academies around me and 
seeing a lot of time being demanded for these kids that you know potentially weren't going to make it in the end I always kind of I, I guess had a bit of a negative mindset on academies but you know hearing the, the work you're doing and, and seeing it a lot around the areas you know around Sheffield and Yorkshire uh, it, it definitely has changed that culture now there is a massive focus on developing the person behind the play which I think is is absolutely fantastic like I say you know never had that in, in my youth as you know coming through as a swimmer and, and that's something I always actively promote as well and and I think what's changing within the football world is we're now more open to like you say looking at ballet or looking at different sports I think traditionally we have such a closed mindset of you know just looking at football practice but now you know coaches that I speak to and, and seeing all the time on Twitter actively engaging you know, looking around different sports, you know, not just invasion sports, but looking at your, you know, your, your dancing or your ice skating or whatever and seeing how we can get take ideas from that. And that's always, for me, I, I think that's absolutely fantastic. I always encourage, uh, you know, coaches to do that. Me coming from the, the uni background and obviously working with lots of other student coaches that have come from completely different sports, you know, you, you do learn a lot and that's something I always encourage, you know, don't ever have a close mindset as a coach you know and I think culture is potentially a problem sometimes in, in sort of the junior grassroots coaching but you know doing stuff differently there's nothing wrong with that is there really and it's all about learning as much as us as coaches like you know like you say as you do as a player yeah I've listen my podcast listeners will be sick of me saying this but the best coaches are the best thieves if you can go around stealing stuff from different people different sports different organizations those are the ones that are the best so from my perspective don't matter where you get the idea from go go and go and steal the idea um and i was going to say this to you obviously at the moment the world's still in chaos so we struggle to see one another but if there's ever a point that you want to come down and have a look you're more than welcome and equally if there's anyone from your audience that wants to reach out who wants more information on you know any of the stuff that we currently do or any of the practices and stuff the podcast obviously me and sam will, will be putting out you'll, you'll see the link just drop me a dm I'm pretty responsive and stuff and i'm open to any and all inquiries so please feel free to reach out if you want any more information or anything that i've said well i tell you what i'll definitely be uh, taking you up on that offer when it's uh, when it's safe and healthy to do so but but yeah fantastic i'll I, I tell you what 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 a, what a first collaboration uh, from us i mean great to collaborate with you michael i think that episode's been uh just just brilliant i've fully enjoyed you know talking and discussing and and debating in some respects you know our sort of different uh, points of view but you know learned a lot as i always do so uh, you know thanks so much for your time i mean for the listeners of the sports coaching podcast how can they find the sports initiative podcast how can they find yourself uh, you know see what you do and get in contact with you uh so on most of the stuff instagram uh, facebook is the sports initiative podcast um on twitter it's si pod um so little bit long for the twitter handle etc so yeah si pod for that that will link you through to our website which is on acast uh, acast which is obviously the same name etc as well um and yeah as i said just dm me drop me an email all of which is on there um and more than happy to help what about yours sam if i've got any of my listeners that would like to reach out to you where can they find you well, I've got a nice, easy uh, website URL that I paid handsomely for, but samaronfloor.com, nice and simple, is uh, where, where I'm at. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, quite active, uh, samomshow underscore MSC. Uh, the podcast link is on is on the website, that's uh, samomshow.com forward slash podcast forward slash. Uh, and then on Twitter, again, equally as active with the podcast, that's uh, at the underscore SC underscore podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, that's where you can find me. 
Perfect. As you said, great conversation. And I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Yeah, definitely. Probably in about six months' time. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll share a few more we'll, tips. We'll probably go against everything we've just said, but it'll be good. <laughs> well, that's coaching in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> cool. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael. Great to uh, great to collab with you, and and you know, thanks for the listeners. I, I guess both new and old for uh, for both of our platforms. Yeah, ditto, and hopefully some really useful stuff for people uh, to go and consider, which would be ideal. So yeah, smashing. Well, uh, I, I suppose that just leads me to say thanks to you, Michael. Thanks to uh, all the listeners of the Sports Coaching Podcast for uh, for checking out as usual. Uh, your support is always uh, greatly appreciated. And yes, do go and check out the Sports Initiative Podcast. I've listened to quite a few episodes myself and I absolutely love the platform. Perfect. I appreciate that. And yeah, equally, listen to really good stuff. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but hockey player regarding risk and reward is probably my favourite. Lawrence Mead. Lawrence Mead. Great episode on risk and reward. So I'd highly recommend people to go and listen to that one. Um, and yeah, we'll stay in touch. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.